Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So the scripture reading this morning comes from James chapter 4. We are in the middle of a series on humility where we're looking at the number of places in the scriptures that have some, some sort of phrase about the last becoming first, the first becoming last, those who exalt themselves being humbled, and those humbling themselves being exalted. And you'll see that a similar, a similar maxim is, uh, is being fleshed out here in James 4. So we're going to read verses 1 through verse 10. Uh, and you can follow along with me in your Bible if you'd like to, or it's printed for you on the worship folder. Uh, it's also on the screen behind me, uh, and it'll be on your screen at home as well, so you can find it someplace to get your eyes on as we read. So let's read together, beginning in verse 1. James writes this to the churches. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. May we believe all that God's word teaches, obey all it commands, trust all it promises, and revere all it reveals. Would you say with me, the grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You know, I have a question this morning that might sound a little strange, because I know it's the time of year where we do New Year's resolutions and all these sorts of things, but here it is. Are you at all content with just being ordinary? What if, what if today was just an ordinary Sunday? What if this service, there was nothing special necessarily that happened, but it was just kind of a, okay, just like every other Sunday. What if, did did anybody, and I I wonder, it would be great to poll, did anybody, as far as a New Year's resolution, just say, man, I just want to have an ordinary 2023? I mean, after the last couple of years we've had, maybe so, but it's typically not on our radar. We are not content to be ordinary. Now, I'm going to come back to that at the very end because I want to tie it together. But I'm using that as a way to really get to the subject matter here in this text. We are a few weeks into a series on humility with a few more to go. And there is an inherent problem in taking so many Sundays to talk about humility. As we've said, it's a shy virtue, which means the moment you start talking about it, it leaves. It is... I use the word impossible. I think that's the right word. It is very hard, if not impossible, to be self-consciously humble because humility is self-forgetfulness. Humility is not something you do. It's not something you achieve. It is something you either are or aren't. And that's a problem because if we want to be people who could be characterized by that word, what are we to do? Well, there is one thing you can do. You may not be able to be self-consciously humble but you can self-consciously humble yourself. And there is a difference. And that's kind of why I want to turn the corner to begin to talk about some of these things in the next number, number of weeks. Humble people humble themselves. They think about others more than they think about themselves. 
they race to the lowest place, they wash feet, they choose backstage roles. To use Jesus' words, they practice their faith in secret, not for the public eye. So humble people do those sorts of things. If they're humble, they naturally humble themselves. But let's say this as well. It's also true that people who start with the humbling part, people who intentionally humble themselves over time have a chance of becoming humble. The text in James, notice verse 10, it doesn't say be humble. In fact, very rarely does the scripture ever say be humble. What it does say is it'll say something like humble yourself. In other words, don't worry about being humble, just humble yourself. Because there, you giggle. I mean, what's the difference? Well, that's what I hope we can get to. And here's what we're going to see from this text. In this call to humble ourselves before the Lord, you're going to see that there are some obstacles to that task of humbling ourselves. Then he gives us the blueprint. And actually, you have three points in your, in your outline. I actually ended up with four. Didn't add to the length of the sermon. Don't worry. It's just what happened late in the week after we printed the worship folder. But you'll see obstacles. And then the blueprint for humbling yourself. And then there's a rationale at the very center of this text for humbling yourself. And then he also gives us insight into the strength. The strength that you have to have in the humbling of yourself. So obstacles, blueprint, rationale, and strength in this task of humbling yourself. And we're just going to use those key points to walk through this text. Okay, first, let's talk about the obstacles because that's where James begins here at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, This is a profound and profoundly helpful text. It's like an onion. There are layers that you have to peel back that he does. There, if you notice how many therefores, he's making this really, really, you know, point by point argument as we go along, and he's 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 peeling back the layers for us. He begins by describing the relational dynamics of so many groups. It's interesting that that's his way into what he wants to discuss. So he says there there are certain relational dynamics. Look there. He says there are quarrels and fights. First one. Now, quarrel is the Greek word polemos or polemic. If you've heard that word used, a, a polemic approach to things, it, it describes social interactions and exchanges that are aggressive and confrontational. It's a way of speaking and relating to other people that, that, that creates a us versus them right versus right and wrong categories. Now, this should be very familiar with us because this is just about the only way we engage with one another in, in the social and political arenas in our, in our culture. It becomes good versus evil, justifying even at times violence because if you really are, if you really are in a situation where there is good, put it against evil, then of course, violence may become necessary. And it's, it's interesting that he, that he plays this out for us. Sin is a centrifugal force. You might remember using a centrifuge in high school chemistry. It spins really fast, and it separates the various parts of a solution from one another. And sin works that way with you and I, and especially in our relationships with one another. In a fallen world, sinful people, a fallen world full of sinful people, community, church, the HOA, you know, Community relationships involve conflict. Community without conflict is pseudo-community. Everyone's polite. You talk about the weather, but nothing more. It's superficial. It's fake. Real relationships are full of chaos because we're sinful. We're proud. We want to be right. We don't listen well. When someone disagrees with us, we want to defend ourselves. We're all different. 
And we have different takes and opinions that sometimes clash against one another. And James doesn't just acknowledge this, and it would do us well to acknowledge it, by the way, and not think what's wrong here, but just realize, oh, I live in a fallen world, and I'm a sinner, and you're a sinner, and this is just the way it's going to be. James acknowledges it, though, and he, he goes beyond that, and he asks why. This is what I like and why I'm so grateful for this text. He says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? See that in verse 1? What is, the, what is the cause of all of this going around and around that we do? And his answer is surprising. He says this, and this is profound, and, and man, it would, we should really pin this on a Pinterest board or on the mirror at home or somewhere where you can look at it over and over again because he says, the fights that you get into with others are almost always the result of the fight that is going on in your own inner life. I mean, look at what he says, verse one, verse two. You desire what causes fights and quarrels? It's that you desire and you do not have. So you murder. Your response to that is to just go around murdering people. Not literally, but, you know, it's the same thing. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, this is so instructive. The word in verse 2 does not describe a natural desire for a good thing. He says what's going on inside of us, it, it, there are these epi-desires that we have that turn good things into ultimate things. Now, for all of us, for all of us, this is a universal human thing. There are things that we want too much, even good things that really matter, but they can begin to matter too much to us, things we believe that we have to have in order to be happy and fulfilled. And, and this can be almost anything. I can use a number of examples, but one might be work. Right? Work, work, there's a healthy, godly desire for work. A healthy human person has a desire to do work because work is good. We've been made to work. It's woven into the fabric of our humanity. Work is a good thing. But if you're not careful, work can become too important. It can begin to matter too much. You can begin to develop an epi-desire for work that turns work into an ultimate thing. And when it becomes an ultimate thing, it begins to take all of your energy and attention. And it becomes, you know, it becomes too big, you know, too much a part of your emotional life and so forth. Same thing with relationships. Relationships are important, but they can also become too important. You can develop a friendship or a romantic relationship that matters too much, that, that you try to make the source of your happiness and your settledness. As long as, you know, if I'm okay with this person, as long as everything, you know, that I'm, I'm good and it's going to be okay. C.S. Lewis said that a healthy friendship acts as a servant of a higher goal or a purpose, that there has to be something that the friendship is actually about, but if the friendship itself becomes the most important thing, it's ruined. And so this is the way that sin works in our hearts. It takes good things, turns them into ultimate things, to idols. That's the word we would use. Turning them into idols that result in out-of-control desires that are constantly fomenting underneath the surface of our lives. Okay. If that is true, what happens... When you have an over-desire, like a, a, like a, a gnarly, like out-of-control need and desire for something. And if you, you I got to have this thing or I'm not okay, you know, I, I'm not happy, I can't be happy without this thing. You have this desire and it's fomenting underneath the surface of your life and then somebody gets in the way of you getting what you want. then that fight within becomes a fight between you and whoever it is that's blocking you from getting what you think you have to have. 
It may be subtle. It may be violent. That epi desire can even turn violent. Look at James uses the word murder, verse 2, because that is, in that moment, if you dig deep enough, that is what it is. You want to eliminate the other person. Okay, what if you want something too much? It's too important to you. It takes up too much of your emotional, mental bandwidth. It's just, it's out of control and compulsive in you. And somebody else gets it and you don't. What then? According to the text, then you'll be tempted to be full of envy and hatred. And that can become a source of quarreling and fighting too. Do you see how, see, you see how this works? So this is the obstacle though to what James ultimately calls us to here, to the humbling of yourself. There are things that you want too much, and you'll do whatever you have to. You'll destroy whoever you have to. And that's pride. Pride is our natural, sinful, self-centeredness driven by epi-desires. These desires, these passions, they affect us in so many ways, but there are really two that are highlighted here. Two different strategies of seeking to do life without God. Pride is the anti-God state of mind. So first, the first is, you see here, he goes on to describe, is to do it all on your own, without God. To just go about your life, just doing it in your own strength, not worrying with God at all. Look what he says. He says, you do not have, verse 2, because you do not ask. But then he turns right around in the next verse, he says there's this second way of doing the same thing. It just looks a lot different, it, it, and it's to use God to get what you really want, which is not God. It's something. It's one of his gifts. He says, you do not have because you do not ask, verse 2. Then in verse 3, he says, you do not ask, excuse me, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You create an idol. You replace God. This is how gross this is. You replace God as the source of your happiness and peace with some other thing. But then, because you don't have the strength to secure it for yourself, you turn around and ask him to give that thing to you. Think about that. The first is irreligion. The second is religion, and they're more alike than different. The typical secular person says things like, I don't need God, uh, I'm fine, all on my own, I'm a self-made person. The religious person says, okay, I'll be good, I'll obey, I'll put God in my debt. They're both expressions of pride. They're both motivated and driven by epithumia. And if you're going to humble yourself, then you have to know what the obstacle is. You have to know, you have to go beyond just behavior and your repentance. You have to dig down underneath just the outward behaviors of your life to find the passions and desires underneath your behavior because we get stuck typically. Typically, We get stuck on this level of desire. And we have to become conversant with the way our hearts are giving themselves over to these desires. Secondly, though, if that is the, tempta- if that is the, the obstacle, then he gives us a blueprint, too. He really shows us, you know, okay, as we begin to grow and, and begin to hopefully be, repent our, our way out of, of being controlled by these desires, exactly what it is that we're called to here. So there's a blueprint. And there are, beginning in verse 7, by my count, we're skipping over the middle part and going down to the bottom, six imperatives in verses 7 through 9, two in each verse, before the summary in verse 10, which is really the summary of everything he has to say in this whole chunk of, chunk of verses here. And together, all of those imperatives give a fuller picture of what it means to be humble and to humble yourself. I mean, there's no textual reason to do this necessarily, but for the sake of time and just as a teaching tool, I'm going to read them in pairs, one verse at a time, uh, and they build on one another as we go. So look at verse 7. He says, if you want a blueprint for humbling yourself, then he says, verse 7, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you want a picture of what that looks like, of submission, we're not yet so far removed from, ah, excuse me, from Christmas. Think of Mary. 
receiving the news from the angel about this child that's going to be born to her and about all of the repercussions that that would have in her life. Do you remember what her response was? She said, she didn't say, yeah, no thanks. You know, she didn't say, yeah, I'm out. Remember what her response was. I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. Or to say it another way, we sing this song quite often. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. You can say it with me, can't you? Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say what? It is well, it is well with my soul. You might be familiar with that hymn, but are you familiar with the story behind it? It was written by Horatio Spafford, who was a successful attorney and real estate investor who lost his fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And around that same time, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. And so the family had had a pretty rough go, and thinking a vacation would do the family some good, he sent his wife and his four daughters on a ship to England, planning to join them after he finished some pressing business at home. And while crossing the Atlantic, their ship was involved in a collision and sank. And more than 200 people lost their lives, including all four of his daughters. His wife survived. And when he got word of her being in England, he immediately set sail to join her. And during the voyage, the captain of the ship that he was on, aware of the tragedy, told him that they were passing over the spot where the shipwreck had occurred. And he sat down and he wrote the words of that hymn. That's what it means to submit yourself to God. When peace like a river attendeth my way, those are the good times. When sorrows like sea billows roll, those are the bad times. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. And what's fascinating in the text is that's how you submit to God. It's also how you resist the devil. Do you see that? Those two things go together. Submit to God, resist the devil. What is the devil's mantra? Milton said it better than anybody I've ever heard. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. I mean, you want to do battle against Satan? You want a prayer in the authority and in the name of Jesus that shakes the foundation of hell? You want to pray with the power and authority of Jesus? You want to shake the foundation of hell in your prayer? Here's the prayer you pray. Father, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, the devil's great aim was to put himself above the Almighty. When you submit to God, you're doing the opposite. You're putting yourself under, under his authority, under his sovereignty, under his goodness. Under his wisdom, you say, there are things that I want, but God knows better than I do what I need. There's a certain way I want my life to go, but who am I to say what's best? I trust him. Submit yourself to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, verse 8. That's, that's the first part of the blueprint. But then he goes on in verse, verse 7, verse 8. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your heart. In other words, in order to submit to God, you have to be... He has to be the object of your affection and reverence and worship. This is worship language in this verse. Hold fast to God, Deuteronomy 10, 20. Cleave to him. It's the language that we use to describe the intimacy of marriage, the bonding together of a man and a woman when they become one flesh. But cleaving, of course, requires leaving. And that's the other part of this verse. He says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. That's right out of Psalm 24. Listen to it. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who has a clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol. So it's an example of parallelism there in that psalm. Clean hands, clean hands and a pure heart are the description of a life that's been swept clean of all potential idols like we talked about just a minute ago. This radical repentance that involves the whole person. So superficiality is the enemy of the spiritual life. Can I say that? Superficiality is the enemy of spiritual power. There has to be depth. 
you have to do a worship inventory of your life because the hands and the heart are connected. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then verse 9, he goes on. I told you we have to be quick. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. And you're like, man, that's, James was in a pretty dark place when he wrote this stuff, wasn't he? So when, this one's hard. It's weird. But it means something like this. It means take your sins seriously and don't be afraid of repentance. I mean, similar language was used by the prophets all the time, wasn't it? Like, he, you know, weep, wail before the Lord. Right? A call to repentance, because of course all of life is repentance. Because we hardly ever get it right the first time. What matters most, here's what I want you what matters most is how we respond when we get it wrong. David, we're reading about him in community Bible reading. David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect. He was far from perfect. David was called a man after God's own heart because his greatest failure resulted in Psalm 51. What matters what matters is how you respond. I love the line from Charles Macker. He says, one of our greatest freedoms is how we react to things. So here's the blueprint. Again, we have to zoom through. Here's the blueprint. Put yourself under God's providence. Stop trying to control your life. Wherever you are, that's God's will. Isn't that so freeing? Like wherever you are, that's God's will. Whatever this day is, guess what? It's the day the Lord has made. So put yourself under his goodness, put yourself under his care, put yourself under his mercy, under his wisdom. Sustain that submission to God through a life of daily, daily life of worship. Live day by day as near to God as you possibly can. Live from the depths. Sweep your life clean of all potential rivals so that he becomes more and more your joy, your peace, your everything, your all. And then embrace a lifestyle of repentance because you're going to get it wrong most of the time. Getting it wrong can't ruin your life. What matters is how you respond. That's the blueprint. But third, there's a rationale too. And the rationale, this is the part that I didn't get in your outline, but the rationale is probably the most important part. Isn't that funny that I didn't have that there at the beginning? But this is the part that, that we need to pay attention to maybe the most. And if you notice, verse 7 begins with a therefore, which is meant to point you back to verse 6. And so all of the commands of 7 through 9 that we just quickly went through, they really flow from verse 6. And in verse 6, James gives us this gospel maxim where he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this same phrase is going to come up again in our passage next week, so we can be quick here, but I didn't want to just leave it out because it's here too. Now, this whole way of living that we're describing, allowing yourself to be carried away by your epi desires and become driven and controlling and even sometimes violent, it doesn't go unaddressed. What James says here is it will be opposed by God. Now, that word opposed there is really interesting. It refers to God's sovereignty. It's the word that we use to describe his plan, his determining of everything that happens. But it's that word, but with the prefix added to it. And the prefix is just the prefix anti. And so you put the two together. God is anti-pride because pride is anti-God. And here's what it means. God ordains the circumstances of your life against your pride. Martin Luther said, God made the world out of nothing, so until we're nothing, he can make nothing out of us. Something like that. Isn't that great? Here's what this means. God will oppose your attempts to do life without him because he loves you. Every place where you exalt yourself, he will work to humble you. So here's, can I just give you a friendly piece of advice? You might as well speed up the process by humbling yourself. 
there'll be a lot less pain and frustration for you. Don't wait for God to humble you. Humble yourself. That's the rationale because there is no way, there is no earning. There is no earning your way to the life you want. Bad things happen to good people all the time. There's only grace. And grace is only given to the humble, to those who have nowhere else to go, to those who have humbled themselves and given up any claim on the life they think they deserve and have thrown themselves on God's mercy alone. They are the ones that find grace or I guess you could say they are the ones that grace finds. And grace is all there is. You with me? Grace is all there is. Everything else is an unreality that eventually gets exposed at some point. And so here's the rationale. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So go ahead and humble yourself. Get it over with. And lastly, but there's a certain strength that you need in the doing of that, I realize. And so that's the last part. And here is... Here's the strength. Here's the promise of this text. And, I, and it really is overwhelming, so much so that the commentators really struggle with it. We don't really know what to make of verses 5 and 6. But here's what, what James says. He says, on the one hand, you can be sure that grace will find you in the place of your humbling yourself because God never runs out of grace. Look at verse 6. It says, he gives more grace in the Greek, that is, he gives mega grace. <laughs> grace upon grace, grace, and then more grace, and then more grace, and then, when you, and then more grace. Because, because we are the great desire of his heart. It says in verse 5, look at this, don't miss this. It says that he yearns jealously for us. Do you see that? And it's interesting, if you read it in the original language, it's really, there's something poetic that James is doing here. It's, that's describing an epi-yearning in God's heart. There is an epi-yearning in God's heart for us that is the power to overcome our epi-desires for everything but him. Think about that. We have an epi-desire for everything but God. He has an epi-desire and yearning for us. That should sit on the soul now, it might seem strange to think of God as being jealous, but actually it's a crucial doctrine. In fact, what, you know, one of the things the commentators say is when he says, or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scriptures say, what exactly, what, what scripture is he, you know, referring us to here? And nobody can agree, so kind of the agreement is, is he's just kind of the scripture in general, not necessarily a, a proof text. So one of the things the scripture teaches us is that God is a jealous God because jealousy and love go hand in hand. Not the crazy kind of jealousy in an, in an unhealthy relationship in a sitcom, okay? Not that. But the expectation of exclusive love and loyalty that is a part of, say, marital love. I mean, imagine a marriage where there was infidelity, but the response to it was just kind of like a shrug, like, oh, well, it's no big deal. Now, what would you say of that marriage? You say something's not right there, and you'd be right. This passage in James is full of the marital language to describe our relationship with God. Verse 4, sin is described as spiritual adultery. So sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. And we don't normally think this way, though, because we do not know the magnitude of his love, his yearning for us. God yearns for you. He pursues you the way a young man pursues the girl he hopes to marry. You are his heart's treasure. God's God is jealous for your love and exclusive loyalty in return, not because he is petty. 
it's because he is the ultimate good and he knows that all the other idols our hearts desire, they take and they take and they never deliver on what they promise. They consume us in the service of them. Only God is consumed by love for us. For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only son. Jesus did not come and die upon a cross so that God could love you. This is important. Jesus came because he loves you. Jesus did not have to die in order to secure God's love for you. God's love sent him into the world. His obedient life and sacrificial death make it possible for you to draw near to God and for him to draw near to you. He became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. This is the Christian gospel. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then there is no record of sin to separate you from God any longer. You are forgiven. Amen. You are delighted in, and you can know and even begin to rely on his love for you in all things in your life and draw on his love on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis like water from a well. And with that, that practice comes the strength to humble yourself. Think about it. If you have fame with God, then you won't need for other people to think well of you. You can choose a role where you remain unseen. If you know, if you know, like when I say no, like if you know, like my hitch impression, like in this general vicinity, like right here, like if you know, like deep in here, right, like really know that you are delighted in by the one that matters most, then there won't be any room left in your heart for anger or violence or envy when people get in the way of your plans. If, if you already in Jesus have a record that cannot be improved upon, then you won't be driven by prideful aspirations. I mentioned Charles Macri. Ashley gave all of us one of his books for Christmas, and it's, it's a beautiful little book. It's, I read it in like 20 minutes. It's, it's great. It's about friendship and kindness Uh, And at one point, uh, the boy in the story has a confession. He meets a a fox and a mole and a horse, and they become friends, and he makes this confession to his friends. He says, sometimes I worry that you'll all realize I'm ordinary. And his friend, the mole, he speaks up and he says, love doesn't need you to be extraordinary. And I'm telling you, I read that, and something in me just broke. Something in me just sighed so deeply (laughs) with relief. Anybody else? Love doesn't need you to be extraordinary. At the heart of humility is a reliance on God's grace for everything. The proud meet with resistance, like divine resistance. The humble get grace, and then more grace, and then more. And grace upon grace. Here's the teaching of the passage. Your sin, your failures, your bad decisions, your regrets, your need will never eclipse the inexhaustible riches of his grace. So just content yourself with being ordinary. Humble yourself. He will exalt you. It's like John Newton said. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. You know it. Twas grace that brought me, has brought me safe thus far, and what? And grace will lead me home. Amen? Pray with me. So, Father, lead us by your grace, we do pray. Forgive us that we allow 
our passions and desires to run away with us. We, get, we, we run away. Uh, we get overrun by them and to the point to where we get so invested in attaining the things that we need and grasping onto the things that we think we have to have that we resort to violence, anger and covetousness and, and even sometimes physical violence towards others. We desperately need you to heal our hearts and so come and do that with a reminder yet again of your grace to us in Jesus that we might repent well, not just of the things that we do, but the things underneath the things that we do that you might find in us pure heart and that it might express itself in clean hands, not lifting up our souls to an idol, but trusting and relying and glorying in the great love that you have for us in Jesus. No matter where we are in the spectrum of faith this morning, Father, call us to repentance and faith. Thank you for your great love. Now help us to return that love to you that you deserve. Thank you for your jealous heart. Make us jealous for you as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's great. So receive this benediction. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this benediction is yet again the reminder that what, what awaits you this week as you go is grace upon grace. Amen. And so, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. God bless you. Go in his peace.